HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Kotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Barry Wine, who is a former lawyer and legendary chef. Barry was a chef and owner of the Quilted Track, which opened in 1975 and successfully operated for 18 years. And during that time, he was awarded rare four stars by the New York Times three times. The Quilted Track is one of the most important restaurants in New York City history, along with Lutez, Four Seasons, Cirque, Viva Cafe, Windows on the World, Chantrelle, the San Domenico, and so on. Barry was also known for incorporating Japanese elements in his dishes and inspired many prominent chefs in this country, including David Kinch of the three-star Michelin restaurant Manresa in California, who joined us on episode 66. So today we'll discuss Barry's unique career path, how he got into Japanese cuisine, and he, how he expressed the essence of Japanese cuisine at the Quilted Draft, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. Please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Eats. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org. And finally, um, many of you have asked where to dine in Japan. So I just uploaded a list of our recommendations on our website. If you're interested, please go to heritageradionetwork.org slash where to dine in Japan. It's all connected with hyphen. Um, so again, uh, heritageradionetwork.org slash where hyphen to hyphen uh, in hyphen Japan. So please enjoy. And now let's start our conversation with Barry Wayne. Hello, Barry. Welcome to Japanese. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so, and thanks for that very nice introduction. Well, <laughs> you're a very special person, so I was looking forward to the show today. So um, where are you from? Um, what did you eat when you grew up? That's the first question. Uh, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and it was very famous for Schlitz beer. Okay. But, but <laughs> as a, a young person, I was drinking, um, eating pizza. Mm. I was eating fish fry, which is a very Milwaukee kind of thing. Um, my family ate out for dinner almost every night. Wow. Nobody in my family was a cook. Wow. Interesting. So that's kind of, but you are really familiar with dining out culture. 
Well, at pizza restaurants at that time. <laughs> okay. Right. And uh, so I heard that you used to be a lawyer and worked at the law firm on Wall Street and had your own practice later. So how did you end up going into the culinary world? Uh, I had moved right after the Woodstock Festival. I thought I was a hippie. <laughs> so I moved very close to Woodstock, New York, mm-hmm. in a, a small town called New Paltz. And there was not a lot to do on Saturday night, and I kept going to these auctions, and I kept buying too many things. And so I said to my wife, uh, we have to have something else to do on Saturday <laughs> so we don't buy more things. Mm. And so I said, well, let's start a restaurant in this little house we owned. Mm. Uh, it was in, sort of close to the center of town. And originally the idea was that somebody else would own the restaurant. I would only be the landlord. Um, but right at the last minute, this man who was a professor at the Culinary Institute um, backed out of the deal. Uh, so I said, oh, we have this house. We'd already built the kitchen. Mm. Uh, why don't I become the owner of the restaurant? Oh, wow. So, but uh, you, do you have any professional training? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I was very good at making lasagna. Mm. Um, but So for about a year, the restaurant ran with a chef who was hired from the CIA, but a recent graduate, very, very recent. So they weren't terribly uh, well-trained yet. Mm. Um, and I, one day I said to myself, ah, I could do it as good as that guy. <laughs> and so I started watching in the kitchen. Um, one of the things that inspired me, there was a, re- a reporter from the Village Voice who came. And on that particular day, I had made the ice cream. It was blueberry ice cream. Mm. And he made a point in his review saying, oh, that was the best ice cream I've ever had. Oh my God. And I said to myself, oh, I made that. <laughs> so, so that got me started. Mm. Wow. So, and eventually you moved to uh, the Hakulde Draft, um, which was opened in 1975 to uh, Manhattan in 1979, four years later. So was your dream... Becoming bigger or becoming more ambitious? Uh, the dream was we were ready for the, the big time. Okay. So we opened very purposely around the corner from Lutess. Uh, although wow. Lutess was on uh, 50th Street, a beautiful street, we were on 2nd Avenue uh, between an Irish pub on one side and a Korean grocery store on the <laughs> other side. So people didn't at first understand we were trying to be just like Lutess. Mm. So, so you were looking for not a bistro or a brasserie type of place, but something really fine dining? Uh, yes. And in fact, one of the goals of the Quilted Giraffe, the reason, well, it wasn't when we first opened it the first day, but it became clear that there were no restaurants in the United States, or virtually none, uh, owned by Americans or restaurants that had American chefs, who were competing on the world stage. Mm. All the restaurants seemed to be French, and very few Americans uh, got to work in those kitchens. The French wanted to hire the French cooks. Mm. Um, so our goal was to create a restaurant every bit as good as Lutes, right. our, our neighbor, um, and to have it staffed, though, with young Americans. Mm. And that so... The whole time we did it, did the restaurant, that was really the goal. Mm. And it was quite difficult because, unlike today, where it's very clear, um, if you're running Le Bernardin uh, or David Boulay or any of the famous restaurants, you can hire an American mm. who has worked somewhere else. Right. In 1979, uh, no Americans really had the experience. <laughs> Right. So we had to give them the experience. Mm. So you, you believed in American talents at the time. Oh, yes. Mm. Um, you mentioned David Kinch. Uh, Tom Colicchio was mm. another one of our famous alumni. Noel Comes, who started uh, Tomcat Bakery, mm. made breads for us. And then he went out and opened his own. Wow. Okay. So really incredible. But that was the time. French equals fine dining, and the fine dining never would be Japanese sushi place, so that's a completely different world. That's right. In those days, in fact, the first Americans who opened sushi restaurants, uh, they always said, we're doing this to meet girls. Uh, <laughs> and we want to make a more romantic-looking place. Most Japanese restaurants in the early 1980s had fluorescent lights. Mm. 
mm. and they were not very sexy. No, uh, it's like operation room something. <laughs> in those, yeah. So the first Americans who started doing Japanese things had that goal. Mm, interesting. Okay, and uh, so what kind of menu did you offer at the Kyoto Draft? Because I heard you surprised New Yorkers with really fresh new ideas. Uh, doing something new and interesting and creating a, I'll call it an interactive experience, mm. um, serving a tasting menu before anybody else did that. So eventually we served a kaiseki menu, mm. and every dish was in a, every plate, every dish we served was on a different plate. Mm. And if you were having a tasting menu sitting at this table and next door, somebody at the next table, somebody was having a tasting menu, mm. they had different plates. Wow. And if you had a tasting menu this week and you came back next week, we made a point to give you a whole new set of dishes. Mm. So we were always inventing. Right. And we tried to invent it so that if you were wearing red shoes, I would give you a dinner that had something to do with red. Oh, wow. And if you were, after a while, we started having a lot of Japanese customers. If you were from a certain place in Japan, I would try and give you plates that I had bought in, oh, that, in, in that city. Wow. It's almost like... A even now, oh, many restaurants are doing it. Maybe Eleven Marathon Park, that kind of <laughs> really obsessively, meticulously um, service-oriented and interesting ideas. So it's very impressive. That was our goal. Right. Okay. But by the way, so the, all the dishes uh, came um, and developed by you or the team? Or how did you come up with all those new ideas? Uh, we had a very um, sort of cooperative idea in the kitchen mm. and I was willing to let all the cooks experiment mm. uh, they could use as much food as they want and develop a dish and maybe at staff dinner every night mm. somebody would cook dinner or say oh I want you to taste this and it was very very open mm. to a collaboration I guess would be uh, the right sounds word. like uh, it would be something very water minded experimental yes. place yes. wow that's amazing and uh, maybe you can tell us uh, some uh, signature dishes. Well, the, the restaurant's most famous dish, and it's still served today, and people remember it, uh, both because of how it tastes and how we served it, was called the Beggar's Purse. Mm. The Beggar's Purse is a crepe filled with caviar and creme fraiche, uh, sort of folded up like a hobo's purse, in Mark Twain holding something over your shoulder on a stick. <laughs> um, and... Sometimes we we served it for years and years, all all the time. It was very expensive. It was fifteen dollars a bite, mm. and it was a eat it all in one piece. Wow! It's even now it could be a little. It probably <laughs> be more. The cost of caviar is probably more today. Right. And the thing that made it particularly interesting mm. is, and this is part of the idea of the quilted giraffe being entertainment mm. for the customer as well as food. Right. Um, we served it on a pedestal. And uh, very often I or the waiters would, uh, as we delivered the mm. beggar's purse to somebody, we'd say, put your hands behind your back <laughs> and lean over and just <laughs> grab the, the beggar's purse off the pedestal and mm. eat it in one bite. Right. <laughs> Eventually, um, as we got braver and it became more fun, uh, we got handcuffs. And we <laughs> handcuffed you to the back of the chair or to a light fixture on the wall. Mm. And I have thousands and thousands of pictures of customers mm. enjoying their beggar's purse. And, um, for example, I have uh, pictures of Warren Beatty. Um, and he brought all of his friends. He brought Madonna. Mm. Uh, he brought Dustin Hoffman. And I have um, 25 pictures of Warren Beatty eating beggar's purses, <laughs> having, having a good time. I missed those on Instagram already at that time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, also, um, you are one of the pioneers to practice the farm-to-table philosophy by using your local ingredients as much as possible, and even you grew your own ingredients. So why was it that another way to make the kilted giraffe like locally rooted American restaurant? Uh, yes. And we, we always had the house. New, the restaurant started in New Paltz. We had a country house in New Paltz, which I still own, mm. uh, which happens to be for sale. Okay. And happens to, <laughs> be a, happens to be a place where we had a test kitchen. Mm. Um, I have a pizza oven 
there. And, of course, one of our most famous dishes mm. was, was um, a, a pizza with tuna sashimi mm. on it. And uh, the base was creme fraiche, not cheese. Uh, Wasabi-flavored creme fraiche. Wow. Uh, John George serves it mm. at both the Mercer Kitchen and at the Mark Hotel. Mm. So really, you founded the Japanese-minded dishes in this country, I think. Well, starting in about 1973, uh, we had this idea. We were kind of doing nouvelle cuisine, the French nouvelle cuisine. And we were serving things on small plates. Mm. Uh, they were French plates or they were American plates. Um, but customers started saying to me, calling me over to the table and saying, this looks very Japanese to mm. us. It wasn't Japanese taste. It wasn't um, Japanese dishware. Mm. But they said, oh, I see the mountain and I see the river um, on your plate. And why the mashed potatoes was the mountain. Mm. Um, and... Uh, why don't you go to Japan? And if you do, I'll introduce you to some interesting people, and you could learn. Right. And that's how it got started. Wow. So that's the, the idea of uh, mountain and water. That's the Sansei Guys, that old classic uh, painting that really captures the moment of the nature. So that's usually uh, incorporated into the dish, and you did it already without knowing. Without knowing. <laughs> right. And so when I went to Japan, I got invited on my first trip, and this is, mm. this is really, I think, what made the whole difference, and I'm very thankful for it, it happened. Mm. Who invited you? Um, one of our customers. Mm. Um, Japanese a, person. A Japanese person. And he happened to love restaurants, to go to great restaurants. So I got to go to three kichos wow. in, in Japan, and I had dinner with Mr. Tsuji. Oh my gosh! At, at two of them, right? So, so listeners who are not familiar with Kicho Tuji, Kicho is really the uh, one of the top restaurants, Kaiseki restaurants in the whole country, and they have different uh, locations. And uh, Tsuji is uh, like CIA. Uh, Tsuji Culinary Institute is the the best culinary school in Japan. So, yes, oh and <laughs> even today, Mister. Uh, Mr. Ch Mr. Tsuji has passed away. He wrote many cookbooks. Right. I mean, the, the, the son is now leading, the son is, but yeah. the first uh, founder. Yes. The, and um, David Boulay has a very close relationship mm. with the Tsuji cooking school. Right. But by the way, the founder, Mr. Tsuji, it was the first culinary book I ever read. Ah. And I might still have it. It's amazing. I think I have it, too. Mm. And act actually, after a couple years... Um, my daughter, who was a high school graduate just right then, uh, I arranged for her to go to cooking school mm. in Osaka with, at oh, the, wow. Mr. Tsuji's school. Right. And she did a homestay with some people. And wow. So over time, we got more and more interested. Mm. Um, I've been to Japan 25 times Wow! during those years. I went at least once a year and sometimes more often. Wow. Um, and we were taken to wonderful restaurants uh, that had very special dishes, lacquerware and ceramics mm. and earthware. And I just got more and more interested and started going to the places where they made sake, places where they, ma where they made dishes. Mm. And the more you, you know, the more you get interested in Japan, the more there is to learn. Mm. And you start learning what you don't know, and then you want to learn learn more so right. it was it was quite a quite good we did that for 10 years mm. for out from 1983 to 1993 okay yeah because uh, when uh, david kinch of mars came to a show and spoke on episode 66 he said barry took a family vacation in japan and when he came back he was a changed person so it must be really a big impact on you um so what was um the most memorable experiences like you know some moments that changed your view to Japanese cuisine. Well, I think it was seeing the dishware mm. as part of the the dinner. Okay. Um, and there, I remember just extraordinary lacquer and going in the kitchen and seeing the owner of the restaurant washing the lacquer himself to, mm. to, because it was it was so special. Right. And over time, we as we collected more dishes, I found I was doing the same thing. Uh, I'd go in the dining room when, to pick up the dishes because I didn't want a waiter taking them <laughs> and, and roughly putting them down on the dishwasher counter mm. and 
I handed it to somebody, right. and and we took very care of good care of our dishes. Because mm. it's a piece of artwork. Yes. Right. And the the whole experience, and that's what we tried to uh, essentially copy, mm. was oh the the special sense of it was a performance or it was a story that was being told. It was not just oh. Mm. Here's the food today. Here's your food. Mm. Here's your bread. Right. Done. Mm. So there is uh, some sort of uh, background, any age dish, what you serve and what you dislike or uh, what you dis elsewhere. Because the table is almost like a scenery in a way of yes. the season. Exactly. Mm. And, and we changed it. And I learned, you know, about using glass dishes in the summer mm. and using more earthenware dishes in the middle of the winter. Right. And um, I still have uh, that collection, which I I have fun using. Mm. Um, but at the time, we probably had, oh, 30 or 40 sets of four or five dishes. Wow. Um, sometimes my favorite dish I would want to serve to somebody else in the dining room. Mm. So I'd... I'd it would be on one table, and I'd have to stall until I got the dishes back in the kitchen and got them mm. washed and could give it to another table. Right. Wow. Yeah, I think uh, the if you go to Kyoto Kaiseki restaurants especially, they're really um, into having a whole set of seasonal dishes. So they keep changing, and then they have a warehouse for the season. Right. So that's completely different, the world. Uh, completely. Right. Versus uh, porcelain. Uh, white porcelain in this country. That's right. right. And we actually, we were very uh, interested in our flowers as, mm. as well. And for just for some lucky reason, I guess, there were some very talented people who were the waiters in the restaurant, mm. but who really wanted to be flower arrangers. Um, so there were, I can think of a couple who we, we made the, them the florist for mm. the restaurant, even though they had no professional experience being a florist. Mm. So, in other words, you uh, you hired a white, like-minded people who's really sensitive to those aesthetic things. Yes. Right. Okay. And so, what about, uh, you know, the whole culture? Like, you know, dishes, place, that's great. But uh, did you see anything, like, you know, culturally, um, you know, Kaisa cuisine mindset or the service? Did you see anything else that you got inspired? Well, one of my biggest teachers, and there was a, a gentleman named Noria Sumihara, Mm-hmm. Uh, who was going? He was an anthropo- going to anthropology school at NYU, and I made we made friends, and he liked the restaurant. And his family started inviting me to Japan, and literally taking me on trips with with them. Wow! Um, he was very involved in the religion Tenrikyo, mm. um, and we oh we we'd have special parties where. Uh, one day it might be a sake party. One day, it, uh, do you know Mito Komen? Mm-hmm. The, was it a TV show? Was it? Yeah, Mito Komen is like, uh, you know, there is an old man, really, and um, Shogun, like That's really right. high, high up person, but he's hiding his ID. That's and right. He they, puts his badge, he puts <laughs> his hand up with the badge. And so we had a, he arranged mm. a uh, dress up party. Okay. And we all wore. <laughs> Uh, costumes. I think they'd been borrowed from a movie studio, mm. so they were. And I had the, ah. the 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 were the haircut, the Japanese haircut, of the, right. the samurai. Um, and I think maybe on your website, um, you you had yes. you have that Six picture. So show page that varies in samurai outfit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was things like that that the Sumihara family mm. uh, just showed me so many things that you would not ordinarily get to see. Mm. I think that's what the special thing of our going to Japan. It was just this lucky that um, our clientele was mm. uh, became more and more Japanese because those were the years that um, Japan was trying to become much more internationalized, mm. uh, buying real estate in New York, learning what Chateau Lafitte Rothschild was, <laughs> uh, learning about things of, of that sort. And we were the wonderful place for a Japanese businessman to bring an American businessman mm. to show something about Japan, but at the same time, for an American businessman to bring a Japanese man, businessman mm. to show what was taking place in America right. and the, how we were starting to understand mm. Japanese food. Right, so it's like a, a mutual, common 
bridging place for powerful businessmen or culturally um, very sophisticated people. That's yes, it, right? yes. Those were those were the years mm. where it was very very obvious what was taking place. Mm. Right, and there was a bubble economy in Japan too. So a lot of uh, <laughs> cultural they, things yeah. going on. I think the customers even took me after work to a piano bars oh, yeah. so I could learn more about Japanese culture. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that was a very uh, heavy Japanese salaryman life after dinner and, and bars. So you became part of it in New York. That's I never learned karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, a good story is um, even Morimoto mm. uh, worked. Uh, he didn't work when we had the restaurant, but when the restaurant closed in the end of 1992... Um, I, it was, the building was bought by Sony, mm-hmm. um, and that's when we went out of business because they wanted to use our space. Right. Um, so I was hired by Sony to work in the Sony Club, and the Sony Club had a very special five-seat sushi bar, mm-hmm. and we needed a chef. And so I went around New York mm-hmm. looking at every Japanese restaurant to see who might become the sushi chef. Right. And surprisingly, in a not very special restaurant... I found Morimoto, mm. uh, and he he came and worked at the restaurant. Right, that was after he worked for um, Nobu. No, restaurant? he worked for us. We, I'd have to say, we discovered him. Ah, okay. And one of the fun stories is, one day I had invited Drew Nieperant, mm. uh, who was involved in Nobu, Nobu uh, to come see how nice our sushi bar was. Mm. And pretty soon after that, he hired oh, wow. Morimoto. <laughs> So incubator. <laughs> yeah, but then he, he loves karaoke, so that's something. That's what made me think of it. I've, I've been with him. He's very good at karaoke. I heard. <laughs> and he's very philosophical, mm. uh, Morimoto. So right. he's one of the, I enjoy mm-hmm. the fact that I worked with him. Right. Yeah, I think Morimoto really tried to, um, kind of like um, behaving funny, but he's such a very uh, deep-minded person, big thinker. Even when he's doing karaoke. Right. <laughs> I have to listen. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully I get a chance. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about how Barry transformed a quilted drop after the trip to Japan. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Barry Wine, who is a former lawyer and one of the legendary chefs in New York. And Barry was the chef and owner of The Quilted Draft, which opened in 1975 and successfully operated for 18 years. During that time, he was awarded the rare four stars by the New York Times three times. So, um, so you, we talked about your trip to Japan, and I heard uh, you really changed the menu and the concept. I mean, not the whole thing, probably, but I heard uh, quite a lot of things happen. So what was the change? Well, we started using the Japanese dishes. Mm. At the beginning... It's, maybe I didn't have very many. Maybe only bought one set in Japan, put it in my suitcase, and, and <laughs> brought it back. As, if you remember, maybe your audience remembers, in those days, there was no f- fine sake in New York. Mm. There was just 
four or five brands. They came in double-sized bottles, magnum-sized <laughs> bottles, I guess 1,500 liters. Um, and it wasn't until much, much later that we start, started to be able to buy fine sake mm. in, in New York. So on every trip, I would buy 12 bottles and put them <laughs> in my suitcase and bring them back and save them for a, a mm. special occasion. Mm. We started, I started to understand the idea. The nicer the dishes were, if they were lacquer, for example, you wouldn't want to use a knife and a fork. So mm. the Quill de Giraffe was serving French food with chopsticks. Oh, my God. Really? Wow. And just all the time, one more thing got added after every trip. Mm. I learned something. Right. Um, we started to have a collection of sake cups. And... Um, I started to learn that the fish always streams, always uh, a fish always goes upstream. Mm. So when I had to put it on the plate, I had to make it going upstream. Mm. And the cooks in the kitchen just had never heard of things of that sort. So it was always learning and teaching and explaining. Um, we started to import fish from Japan. Mm. Um, just uh, today, it's normal. To, to see that in sushi bars and even in, in fine restaurants. But at the time, we were probably the first customer mm. for the, the kind of company that flew fish right. over every day. Right, and especially non-Japanese restaurants, right? That's right. We, mm. had, uh, we had Wagyu uh, mm. early on. We even had Fugu. <laughs> uh, and I have a certificate. It's kind of silly. Really? Because I was not a, really a, a Fugu chef who mm. could... Uh, clean of, of, of fugu, right. but but um, I got a certificate. Wow. Uh, but the fish had been served, been brought over frozen, mm -hmm. so there was no risk that somebody oh, okay. would die from. Right. But did you our get the, the license to remove the poison in Japan? Or have? No, no, no. no, no, no. Like, <laughs> no we're, we're buying the frozen right. fugu where the, the okay. poison was already gone. <laughs> right. Okay. But all those changes, you know, you, you, I know that you have a lot of regular customers. So, what was uh, their reaction to your change? Oh, I think they, they sort of got excited by it and they knew the next time they came back it would not be the same mm. that truly was one of the fun parts of the quilted giraffe um, there was either a seasonal ve vegetable and you know these were the days when there, if you could only buy strawberries in season mm. so today we can get them year round but because we had the farm in New Paltz, um we were able to start to we had a car and a walk-in refrigerator, which mm. is still in my house, which is for sale. <laughs> um, and we had a farmer, and we'd grow things. And in the early days, um, the Michel Gerard, the mm. French chef, was, was one of the people who had a great influence on me. Mm. And he would serve a dish called leg of lamb baked in hay. It's in his cookbook. Mm. And and I've been to his restaurant three or four times, and he has a big garden as well. Mm. So I said to myself, well, why don't we serve leg of lamb cooked in corn husks? Mm. Which is, again, very American. Right. Um, and we could get it at our farm when we drove up to New Post to get things. And that's, that's how things came mm. about. Right. Um, um, the French, when you went to France in the summer, you could eat uh, for dessert fraise de bois. The little wild strawberries mm -hmm. can't buy them in the store. Mm -hmm. They take forever to pick. To pick one pint of them might take an hour. <laughs> uh, but we started growing them in the farm in New Paltz, mm. and so we started incorporating all these elements: the dishware, the flowers, the seasonal foods, the imported fish. Mm. And um, at one point, Gail Green wrote a story, and she called me the best Japanese chef in New York. <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Well, no surprise, though, because the philosophy is really there. Even if you, maybe some dishes look like non-Kaisik style. But speaking of, so um, what kind of Japanese-influenced dishes did you serve? Well, we used, uh, started using more and more ingredients. The tuna sashimi pizza with mm. wasabi yeah, I wish, crème, crème fraîche. I wish I could taste that. Sounds great. Um, at one point... We decided we should maybe try making sushi, but wanting to do something new, we made mashed potato sushi. Hmm. Instead of the rice, um. uh, we used mashed potatoes. Not, not hot, cold enough that they'd kind of stick, 
stick together. I remember buying a device um, that lets you make a rose in the middle of a flower in the middle of this, the maki roll mm. uh, without really knowing how to do it. Right. Just the, 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 the roller right. did, did it for you. Uh, and so we made this mashed potato sushi with a, a flower in the middle. Wow, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. But the mashed potato itself was, uh, what kind of flavor was it? Uh, oh, it tasted like mashed potatoes. Oh, okay. So, so, so no vinegar. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. It's just the idea of a maki roll. Right. Um, you remind me, um, on one of the trips, I met uh, a very famous Japanese chef named uh, Mikuni. Mm. And there's a restaurant in Tokyo called right. Hotel de Mikuni. Mm-hmm. And he had a cookbook, and he was serving things that I thought kind of represented what we were doing, unusual mm-hmm. Japanese food. And so we invited him to New York. Um, he came, he spent a week, and he, we gave him our menu, but he made it even more Japanese, uh. which, which, was, which was fun. He brought a TV crew with mm. him, um, and it became a one-hour show on Sunday night, I think on maybe Channel 4 in Japan is a right. is the very popular channel. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of Japanese people had, right. had seen that. A lot of Japanese, um, trying to remember, uh, there was a, a TV show called Love Story, and a very handsome man and very good-looking woman. Um, but it was it was Love Story New York, I think, was the name of the, okay. the, the story. Um, and they came and filmed at the restaurant. Wow. Um, I think there was a very funny woman named Pink, mm-hmm. a comedian maybe. Uh, she came and filmed wow. at at the restaurant. Mm. So over time, the, these things kind of build on on themselves, right. and the expectations for us were higher, mm. and made us work harder. <laughs> and and uh, we'd always be looking for this, the newest thing. Right, and then you served a hundred thirty five dollar Japanese tasting menu. So was it like a kaiseki cuisine? Yes, style? We, in fact, we called it New York. Kaiseki. Mm. Um, I have a big collection <coughs> of, I call it the archives. Mm. Um, because we had the country house, I had plenty of room for saving things. And we just saved every time the restaurant got in a story, mm. uh, in a newspaper, um, letters from customers, all kinds of things like that. And I have all those, th- those, those things. And I look back on them today, mm. and I can see over year to year to year, how things got more and more sophisticated. Wow, interesting. So, in other words, I hope that Japanese elements uh, kept you kind of um, thinking all the time because you have to have something completely different angle, right? Because uh, an, an American Western cuisine is really deep, but Japanese angle you have to really see differently. And there's and and there's the culture that comes with it. It's not only the taste. Mm. Uh, and, you know, whether you want to say this is important for a restaurant or, or not, I remember going to Kicho, and you sat in a tatami room. Everybody was in a different mm. tatami room. And if you wanted to go to the bathroom, the, the person who was waiting on you said, oh, just a minute, I have to go look mm. that nobody else is in the hallway because we don't want anybody to see anybody else. Mm. So so if I, I suppose somebody might be there with his girlfriend. They, uh, they don't right. want to be seen. Um, but that kind of attention to detail, I thought was really special. Mm. Um, we started doing things like uh, we got a CD called Japanese Airport. Okay. And it, it made those sounds that if you've been to the Japanese airport, mm. those ding, ding, ding. Um, <laughs> and so we played that in the bathroom. Mm. And we started just doing all these little details that would, you might see in a very, very fine restaurant mm. in Japan. And that, of course, was very unusual in the United States. And I think a whole bunch of cooks and people owned restaurants would, would come and see it. Um, we got a lot of publicity. And um, eventually, I think we were the beginning mm. of what's developing in the Japanese restaurant world or re- American restaurants 
being a little more Japanese, mm. like you say, Love in Madison Park. Right. So that's the whole package, not just the dining, but the whole experience. Yes. Kind of like part, part of your life. It's different, that moment of dining. That's I right. I started wearing a Japanese chef's jacket after, <laughs> after a while. Oh, wow. Stopped wearing the French style mm. chef's jacket. Well, if you can uh, find the picture, I'll post it on La Chopez too. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, so the, the Kyoto Giraffe was in operation for over uh, 18 years. Until the Sony Corporation bought, bought out your lease, like you said earlier. So, um, why do you think the restaurant is so successful and lasted such a long time? Uh, we worked very hard. It was, it was my wife at the time mm. and I, she was at the front door, I was in the kitchen. We very much coordinate, coordinated the timing of the food. We were, I was a stickler, I was. Maybe too tough on everybody. Mm-hmm. We wanted exactly ten minutes between courses, um, and we served a lot of multi-course dinners. Um, but if you didn't do that, uh, dinner might take three or four hours. And mm. our feeling was people didn't want that. Right. So to uh, keep it moving exactly on schedule, we had these digital clocks, mm. um, and it was very hard on everybody who worked there to. It just wasn't. It wasn't relaxed. And mm. It looked relaxed. Looked very relaxed um, to the to the customer, but it was very much based on. Right. We we want to <laughs> do this exactly the right way. Mm. We started cutting the food in very small pieces, kind of in the Chinese style of wok cooking, mm. or so that everything could cook in three or four minutes. Uh. We only had maybe one or two things on the menu that were roasts. Mm. Everything else was in the pan. Uh, like scallops, for example, right. or shrimp, mm. uh, or small pieces of meat. Mm. Um, and those were the things that made it possible mm. to be right out of the pan, right onto the plate, right to the customer, mm. within you know, exact one minute from the kitchen to the customer. So it was, it was perfect. Right. Well, actually, uh, you know, the aforementioned David Kinch of Marissa, uh, he's got a great, beautiful uh, cookbook. And one of uh, the chapters said um, Barry's approach to running a kitchen was as different as his food. The kitchen was incredibly organized, efficient, and clean. Uh, clean. And it was also uh, unusually quiet. And so um, also he said uh, he attracted free thinkers like himself and always wanted to know what they thought about the dish or ingredient, and Barry didn't allow his ego to get in the way of running the best restaurant in the city or uh, trying dishes or techniques to, that would be unthinkable in a rigid French kitchen. So that's who you are. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm very proud of David mm. and, and many, many, many people who worked at the restaurant right. um, have gone on to very good careers and in mm. food. Well, you mentioned earlier, you have a lot of great, great graduates. So, yeah, you influence. And I think uh, kind of, I, I, if I can be, I'm very grateful that you really created a foundation of Japanese cuisine for those talented chefs in this country. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, what do you think you achieved through the success of the Quilted Draft, like personally or professionally? Well, I think one of what we knew is to make this new kind of restaurant, not the old, the French, whether it was new f- French food, nouvelle cuisine, or mm-hmm. but there was still an attitude in the kitchen that one chef had learned from when he was growing up. He was, worked at 15 and somebody else, and there was a lot of shouting. Mm-hmm. And I call it, um, that was the brutal kitchen. There was It was just mm-hmm. was like fighting. There wasn't a... a Team effort, right? In, intimidating and intimidating. Then just a walk for fear and yes, exactly. Right. And if you read Eric Repair's recent book, uh, which I makes, haven't, I'm curious about that. It makes it very clear of the, some of the places he had mm. worked before, Robuchon, for example. Wow. Um, and I knew just instinctively that we couldn't have the kind of restaurant that we wanted unless we got rid of the brutal. Mm. We needed to make it a teamwork. Mm. Um, we needed, needed to make the waiters on the same side as the, the cooks. Mm. 
mm. and to respect the, the cooks and, and vice versa. Um, so one of the things the restaurant also did I'm very proud of, we were one of the first restaurants that had the service charge. Uh, and that was my idea of how to put everybody on the same team. Mm. Uh, wow. We in New York City just started doing it. <laughs> so yeah. that was your founder of the idea. Right. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's really the learning place that should be the kitchen, not like being a slave, scared, and tired. You cannot serve great food. That, right. But right. that that was the tradition that we were breaking. Mm. And it's, it's not that... Uh, Today, every American restaurant is not brutal, mm-hmm. but it, there are many where there's no shouting in the kitchen. And again, Eric Repair is one of my favorite chefs, mm. and, and uh, he makes a point of how gentle, he, how he has changed from when he grew up mm. to where he is today. And it, Le Bernardin is a more gentle place right. to work. Mm. And by doing it, you, like you did, um, you gather knowledge intellects from all those um, talented chefs. So that's a win-win situation. That's right. Tom Colicchio, I think in his book, uh, tells a story of how we used to cook duck one way. Mm. And then when he was working for us, one day he said, I have another way to cook duck. Do you mind if I show you? Mm. And he he showed us. And of course, his way was better. So from then on, we cooked his way. Mm. So it, it was that kind of feeling inside Inside the kitchen. Mm, so grow together. Yes. Right. Okay. And that's partially because I was not trained, so I was, <laughs> I was very happy to learn. Mm. But we didn't want to learn the bad things. And I had a good good feeling of what I did not want to learn. Mm, right. Yeah, I, I saw other comments. Uh, because you were not professionally trained, you exceeded that's by, by uh, John um, Bumbaum. Mm-hmm. Your graduate when we graduate. Yes. He said that too. And, um, yeah, so many other comments I, I read that people really appreciated not having that rigid French training that really made you successful, too. So, okay. And uh, so you introduced Japanese cuisine through the Quilted Draft to many New Yorkers, and now you see a lot of more Japanese elements in American dining scenes. But how do you predict the future of Japanese cuisine in America? Getting more expensive. <laughs> that is for We're, sure. In New York, we, we see so many $185 tasting menus or mm-hmm. $235 tasting mm-hmm. menus. And, and it's almost like anybody thinks they can do that. But my advice or to, to people is that it's not only the food. Uh, it's not the precision of the food. It, it's that but it's a lot more. It's the hospitality. Mm. It's the visual. The, the Using the better dishware right. makes the, the customer have a better time. Mm. And for us, it, it really is about um, entertaining the customer. Mm. Not only feeding the customer, but entertaining the customer. And I find that missing today in many places, even the expensive ones. Mm. Um, it's just like a machine. Right. They, they serve something. It might be a counter restaurant, and they don't talk to you. Mm. Well, who wants to go to a, a sushi bar when the, the sushi chef doesn't want to talk to you? Right, exactly. So. Right, missing the point of sitting at the counter. Exactly. Right. exactly. And I think sushi chefs are trained to have a conversation in Japan, as far as it's a good restaurant. They're really, like, without... Uh, losing a quality, they're trained to talk and explain and educate you. And what we haven't seen yet, uh, but I remember so much from Japan, is what you call a kapo Mm. restaurant, where it's a counter restaurant, but it's not sushi. It's it's a little more casual. But it's not izakaya. It it could be kaiseki level in a kapo restaurant. The food itself is, but you can request, I feel like eating this, and they serve you this. That's right. And Whereas uh, ryote, that's another form of uh, kaiseki, but ryote is, you have a garden. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. I, I heard I love And a from, lantern. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so if you see the garden lantern, it's yeah. ryote, it's and it's uh, way more expensive even. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So your kapo is a good, uh, good name to know because I feel like going kapo restaurant in Japan. But they, we, they, haven't, we haven't had a lot of that yet. Mm, uh, no, I don't think even people know the name. We don't use that right. here. Right. So, so maybe it's Kapomasa. 
Um, oh, right. But, but it's still, funny. it's not the style, though, is not that. Where no. You're sitting across from somebody right. cooking for you in mm-hmm. person. It's very intimate. Yes. Right. Yes. So, would you like to open another yes, couple I restaurant? Would. I don't want to open another restaurant, but that is what I would want to do. Okay. Exactly what I would want to do. Maybe you sell the new Paul's house and then uh, become the investor for a new yeah. couple restaurant, or have a uh, have a teaching school in my mm. country house right. to somebody who wants to do that because it's got a wonderful, wonderful kitchen, the pizza oven, the walk-in refrigerator, mm. and the, and the garden. Wow. So, how uh, where can I find you? Our listeners who's interested. Uh, wants to know more about you. What's the? Uh, where can I find you? Um, my email mm-hmm. is uh, barrywine at eatcaviar dot com, oh. and I think I started doing that because of the beggars purse. So I've, right. I've I've had that email address a very long time. I also own drinksake dot com. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And your name is Barry Wine. So that's right. <laughs> um, and I am on Facebook. Okay. And. Um, I think if somebody wants to be my friend, better to write me and say, I've asked to be your friend. Will you, can you do it? It's not that I'm fussy. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I'd like to kind of know who my friends are. Right. Before before I say yes. Right strategy. Right. So write through uh, the Facebook, the message? Yes. Okay. No, they can write to me in uh, barrywine at eatcaviar.com and say, I'm asking your Okay. I, asked, I, I asked you on Facebook to be friends, okay. and then I'll then I'll make you my friend. All right. So listeners, barrywineycaviat.com. Yep. All right. So um, thank you so much for joining us today, Barry. Well, it was fun. So uh, listeners, if you do, if you have any questions or comments about the show uh, or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at Japanese at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. We appreciate your feedback. And today's show is made possible by Corin and our engineer was uh, Vitoro Hash. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.